this program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. All right, well, before we get uh, back started through the material, um, uh, Tony, I believe it was you last week who asked a question about uh, John Murray, why he... Uh, why he wouldn't call the pre-fall relationship between God and Adam a covenant because covenant didn't appear in the scripture, but why he was willing to speak of the Trinity. Is that, didn't you ask that question? Um, well, I, I gave you kind of a, a sort of answer at the time, uh, but I, I, was, I thought about it later as I was driving home, and I maybe didn't give you as good of an answer as could have been given. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up in case it was still bugging you or anybody else. Um, I say to remind you that the, the, Tony's question was, you know, we talked about how John Murray doesn't want to call the pre-fall relationship between God and Adam a covenant because the word covenant doesn't explicitly appear in Genesis 1 and 2. And Tony had asked, if that's the case, then is Murray comfortable speaking of the Trinity when obviously the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Scriptures? And Murray has a he has a pretty particular position on it. Um, his his particular hesitance is because the word covenant does appear in the scriptures. It is a scriptural term, but yet the scriptures don't apply it in Genesis one and two. Whereas Trinity obviously is a you want to call it an extra biblical word. I mean, it doesn't appear anywhere in the scriptures, and so Murray's comfortable speaking of a Trinity, using Trinity as a as, a, as a, a word to synthesize and describe what's in the scriptures, whereas he feels like since covenant, since the terminology of covenant was available to the biblical authors and they didn't apply it to one and two of Genesis, it ought not be applied, whereas no one spoke of Trinity at that point in Revelation, and so it's acceptable to take the, you know, the later terminology and use it to synthesize what's in the scriptures. Is, is that maybe a little bit clearer than what I said? last week um but anyway, that, that's that's the the source of murray's distinction there but anyway uh with that behind us uh we had last week we had finished up and we were going through the covenant of works and we're talking about how in we've said how in each covenant there's both a relational aspect and what you might call a contractual aspect and we were working our way through the relational aspect, seeing if there was a, a binding relationship, so to speak, that was described in Genesis 1 and 2, a binding relationship between God and Adam. And we had I just gotten through the, uh, a discussion of the, uh, the Imago Dei in, God that, or in Adam that he was creating in God's image, that there was that foundation for a relationship. Um, and we saw that specifically in Adam's creation. And... We just want to bring that out a little bit more in uh, giving just a little bit more depth to the relational aspect of the covenant of works. Uh, you know, the, the scriptures say that when God created man, he created man in his image. So from, the, from his first creation, Adam, as a sole individual, a lone individual, uh, he bore God's image. But the, the Imago Dei receives even, even further depth when you get into Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, we, we talked about uh, how you know, when you look through Genesis chapter 1, uh, there's this sort of refrain that develops of God making everything after his kind or everything after its own kind um, and how you get that radically noticeable break where everything else is made after its own kind, but man is made after God's kind, so to speak. Uh, God, or man bears God's image in a very a unique way. Uh, but at the same time, along with that refrain of everything being made after their own kind, there's also this recurring declaration that God saw his creation as good. You know, it becomes a, a noticeable refrain as well as you work through uh, the opening chapters of Genesis. You know, throughout Genesis chapter 1, 
Uh, God creates something, and then without variation, he looks on it, and he declares that it's good. In fact, when you get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and God has finished all of his creation, he's on the cusp of the Sabbath rest, and he surveys the entirety of what he, was, what he has made, he looks at all of the creation in its variety and its harmony, and he declares that his creation is very good. Uh, in its entirety and in its particulars, the creation of the perfect God, the creation of the good God, is good. But then you get to Genesis 2, verse 18, and you have a noticeable difference. In Genesis, Genesis 2, 18, God says, or the, the Scriptures read, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Now, the only thing in all of God's creation to be declared not good is the solitude of man. Now, that's a, when you sit and think about the situation in which God said this, it's pretty staggering. Adam was in perfect, sinless innocence. He was inhabiting a lush garden filled with everything he would ever need. He was in perfect, unbroken communion with God himself. Uh, he was God's image bearer in God's paradise as God's companion. And yet it's not good that he didn't have fellowship with another human being. And the reason why this solitude of man, even in the midst of all of this other perfection, the reason why this solitude is not good, uh, the scriptures seem to indicate, is because it impinged on the man's image-bearing. Uh, if you perhaps remember back in Genesis 1.26, we talked about that verse last week in the creation of man. Back in 1.26, God had spoken in the plural, let us make man in our image. Now that, you know, that verse has received all manner of interpretation and explanation. and you know, Some people try to hang a full doctrine of the trinity on that one plural i don't think you can quite do that with it i think that's it doesn't quite bear the weight of a full doctrine of the trinity but i do think it's uh i think it's probably wise to to take the verse in the way that victor hamilton takes it in his uh commentary in the new international commentary series he sees genesis 126 as a plural of fullness and there's not yet a full awareness that there's one God in three persons, but there is at some level an awareness of plurality within the unity of the one God. And it's not unique just to 126. You go back to the very opening verses of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the scriptures refer to God. And then in verse 2, they refer to the Spirit of God. You know, so already twice in the first chapter of Genesis, you have this emerging idea of plurality within unity. You know, at the very least, you know, there's not yet a, a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity, but there is this awareness that within the unity of God, there is plurality. And that plurality was not reflected in isolated humanity. It wasn't good that the image-bearer of God was alone. So what did God do? Well, He made woman. But as you know, God didn't make woman right away. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, God parades all the animals before Adam, and Adam gives names to all the animals. He exercises dominion in that way. And as Adam is seeing all of the vast and the diverse animal creation parade in front of him, God is pressing upon Adam's heart the fact that stated at the close of verse 20. Verse 20 says, For Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. You know, as Adam saw male animals and female animals and animal after animal walk in front of him, uh, it would have been pressed upon him that he was alone. Uh, and then, only after Adam has started to realize his solitude, when you get to verses 21 and 22, then God forms Eve out of the bone of Adam's body. And then Adam, he's asleep. When Eve is made, he awakens, uh, he rejoices, uh, he sees that he needs this woman, that this woman needs him, and Adam rejoices. Now, at that point, uh, at least insofar as who Adam was, uh, the image of man in God was complete. Uh, man is bearing the 
divinely exhaled image of God and he's burying it in plurality or in community. Um, I think at that point you get a, a pretty full-fledged view of the relationship between God and man, between God and Adam. Uh, there, uh, God is, or Adam is bearing God's image and he's bearing it in a plurality even that mirrors the being of God. And so you have there, I think it's safe to say, an immensely strong relational component of this covenant of works. Uh, there's the most intimate of connection or relationship between God and Adam. Uh, Adam is bearing God's image. Now, before we go on to, um, to look at the contractual element of the covenant of works, I do want to take just a, just a second to think about some of the implications of all that uh, in preaching or in pastoring. I, I've said, you know, I'm no expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I want us to at least, as we're working through the concepts of covenant theology, to give some thought to how these concepts apply uh, when you're preaching or when you're pastoring. You know, how does you know the imago day and the plurality of God reflected in man and woman? How does that have any bearing whatsoever on your ministry when you're in the ministry? Uh, and at least you know two thoughts come to mind that hopefully will be uh, fruitful for your thinking. Now, first of all, you know, this relational aspect of the covenant of works, I think, really presses on us the blessedness of Adam. Uh, we, we oftentimes tend to denigrate Adam. Uh, we treat him as if he was incomplete or foolish, uh, as if he was kind of the, the, biggest, the biggest fool to ever live because he you know, gave up paradise. But I think when, when, you, when you see the covenant of works in its, its full aspect, you really see that Adam was glorious. He was the preeminent example of the creative glory of God. Uh, he bore God's image. He was in relation with his creator. He was the pinnacle of God's creation. And I think that you know, from the very outset, that guards us against uh, a sort of Bardian anthropology where we see man as flawed simply because he's man. Uh, there is no flaw in humanity. Uh, the flaw that's in us is our sin, not our humanity. Uh, Adam, when he was created, was perfectly human, and he was without demerit. Uh, he had a, uh, an unmediated relationship with God. And I think that, you know, particularly in, in pastoring and preaching, can be helpful in shaking people out of some of the kind of the, the common barriers we put around our sin. Oftentimes people try to take what's really their sin and blame it on their humanity. Uh, you'll have sullen, rebellious teenagers, and people will say, well, that's just the way teenagers are. Or you'll have you know, a group of old folks in the church, and they're always bitter and critical, and people say, well, when you get old, you get bitter and critical. Uh, you have men in the congregation who are struggling with uh, pornography or other sexual temptations and people say well that's yeah, what guys do or there are women who gossip and say well you know women tend to gossip that's just the way it is but the fact of the matter is that's not the way that it ought to be you can't take what's sin and blame it on your experience of humanity uh, we're not created as men we're not created to be lustful and overly competitive uh, we're created to be in relationship with God and what gets in the way of that is sin, not humanity. I think oftentimes people need to be awakened, with, awakened to the fact that their, humanity, or their, their sinfulness cannot be chalked up to their humanity and then just passed by. Uh, if you know, we, we, as God's image bearers, are created to be in fellowship with Him, and if something blocks that, if something is impairing our relationship with God, we need to call it sin, because that's what it is, and we need to seek by the power of the Spirit to mortify it. Now, we can't be willing to accept our sinfulness and to say that it's our humanity because the fact of the matter is it's not. That seems to me to be one implication of this creation of Adam. The, the second one, I think, that comes out pretty clearly is we see in this original covenant of works and this relational aspect, we see our need of communion, uh, communion with each other. In Genesis 2.18 you know, there's the importance of communion within marriage. 
But I think you, you also, I think it's legitimate to say that there you have the beginnings of the doctrine of the church. A man is created to serve God, to worship God in communion. Uh, you know, as I hopefully indicated a minute ago, the words of Genesis 2.18 really couldn't be more shocking, it doesn't seem to me. Uh, unbroken, undisturbed fellowship with God, if it's solitary fellowship, is not good. A fellowship with God occurs in community. You know, certainly, you know, as, as Christians, we have uh, private fellowship with God. That's a tremendous blessing. That's something we cultivate in our private lives. But if we don't also worship with God's people, if we're not part of a believing community, serving God uh, in communion with each other, then we are fundamentally eviscerating the image of God that we bear. Uh, God's purpose isn't met by a bunch of individual Christians. It's met by the church, a community of people worshiping God, bearing God's image, and bearing that image in their worship. You know, it's uh, you all the time run into folks who say they're and they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they just don't believe in the church, and they can worship at home. They they watch TV preachers or whatever the case may be, and you know, always the. Uh, the fallback position is to talk about you know the not forsaking the assembling together that Hebrews refers to and the importance of the church in the New Testament. But there's also this underlying, and all that's certainly true, but there's also this underlying fact that in a, the very basic level of our humanity, uh, we're created to bear God's image in community and in fellowship. And when we try to worship Him in solitude, it's not good. It wasn't good for Adam and it's, it's not good for us. And even when you're within the church, that also calls on you to, to die to yourself in order to foster the fellowship of the church. Uh, the church isn't there to serve you. Uh, you're there to be a part of God's people. So there's just a, you know, a, couple of, a couple of thoughts that come to mind maybe as you are sitting there listening or go back through your notes. Maybe that'll be a, get your thoughts moving as far as some other areas of application on the relational aspect of the covenant of works. But what about the contractual elements, if you want to call them that, the contractual elements of the covenant of works? Certainly there was a relationship, but were there the, the sort of parameters around that relationship that make it a covenant and not just a relationship? Now there you know, we start, get, start getting into what Robertson, if you've done some of the reading of Robertson, uh, he makes a distinction between the general aspects of the covenant of works and the focal aspects of the covenant of works. And both of those aspects that Robertson describes fall under this uh, general rubric of the uh, contractual elements of the covenant. Now, the, the first part there, to, to use Robertson's categories, uh, the first part are the general aspects of the covenant of works. You know, when we, like we said last week, when we think of the covenant of works, we tend to uh, reduce it all down to just a command not to eat of one tree, but there are much broader uh, contractual sorts of elements to the covenant of works. And these general aspects are essentially you know, what are often called the creation ordinances. Uh, within the covenant of works, there are these obligations that are binding on all of humanity because of the covenant. Uh, there are duties that man's required to perform, responsibilities that he has placed upon him. Uh, these are part of the created order. You know, they're not the one specific point at which man's obedience is tested, uh, but yet all the same, these are obligations resting on Adam because of the covenant. Uh, now, you know, different people give different numbers of the creation ordinances. Uh, Robertson, in his book, gives three. It seems to me uh, that four are, are worth mentioning in just a slight bit of detail. But as, as we go through these four creation ordinances, these general aspects of the covenant, I want you to notice a, a commonality that runs throughout all of these ordinances. In each of the creation ordinances, there is a perfect joining of duty and blessing. In each of the creation ordinances, man undeniably has a duty pressed upon him. Yet at each point, it is precisely through that duty that man knows blessing. Uh, in each one of the creation ordinances, you can't separate between the obligation that's placed upon him and the blessing that's held out to him. Uh, the two are 
inextricably linked. And we'll, we'll notice that as we go throughout, but I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. Now, the, the first creation ordinance that we find in the covenant of works is the ordinance of procreation. And you find that in Genesis 1, verse 28. In 128, uh, God says to man, he says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. You know, man is commanded to multiply and to fill the earth. He's to have children, uh, to, to fill the earth with his offspring. Now, that's an obligation that man has. It's pretty clear he's commanded to do it. God doesn't say, if you want to have kids, go ahead. He says, multiply and fill the earth. Uh, he's commanded to do it. But at the same time, it's an obligation that's filled with blessing. Uh, there, in just right in 128, where God commands man to procreate, he immediately then also tells man to subdue the earth. You know, so mankind has work to be done. And obviously, if mankind has sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters, he has help in the work that he is to do. There's blessing that comes through his procreation. He has companionship. He has aid. Uh, he has helpers in doing the task that's set before him. And, of course, even more than that, there's the just the, the joy of bearing children. Um, if I recall, I think a, a number of y'all have children of varying ages, and you know, you know the joy of bearing children, uh, the joy of... You know, the simple things of laughing and playing with your children, uh, the joys of seeing the faith pass from generation to generation. You, there are, uh, you can't look at the bearing of children as purely an obligation. You know, when mankind obeys this creation ordinance, he also knows blessing. Uh, it's a, a, a perfect meeting of obligation and reward. But that's the, the first creation ordinance. You have procreation. Uh, the second creation ordinance that I think you can pick out is labor, which we I mentioned or kind of hinted at just a minute ago, and it also appears there in Genesis 128. Uh, Genesis 128 says that man is to subdue all the earth. He's to work, he's to labor, he's to cultivate and tame. He, he takes this creation that God has made and he subdues it. Now, I think in that there's a very full-orbed picture of labor. Mankind isn't just, you can't say that his work was just planting and harvesting and uh, he had certain parts of his day that he was working and certain parts of his day that he was relaxing. Uh, the task of subduing an earth that has just been created is an expansive task. It fills everything that man does. Uh, it's a, a very expansive task that's placed upon him. And in uh, verse 29 we see that through that obligation, again, man knows blessing. In verse 29, the scriptures say, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. And so as man undertakes this labor, he provides for himself. Uh, he's obligated to work, but through that work he knows the blessing of material provision. Uh, he, he works, and so therefore he gets to eat. Um, and incidentally, I, I think it's, it, at that point it's worth noting that part of the original constitution of human beings is this connection between labor and reward. And we're meant to labor, and we're meant to enjoy reward through that labor. That's part of who we were made to be. And if you look over the course of history, even over the course of our own society, you realize that when you separate these two, when you separate between provision, uh, or when you separate between labor and provision, the tendency always is to dehumanize humanity. Uh, if you have man labor without a due reward, then the dignity of man is insulted. And in the eyes of that man and in the eyes of others, he becomes less than human. He becomes an object. Likewise, if you give man reward without labor, then man becomes self-absorbed. He becomes lazy. Uh, he becomes more of a drag on society than a helpful member of it. Uh, man was created to have a necessary connection between labor and reward. And you can just look over uh, the history of man and the history of uh, you know, any particular civilization 
And you can see that when, that, when a divorce is made there uh, between labor and reward, uh, humanity tends to become dehumanized. Uh, the connection is part of who we were made to be. Um, but that's the creation ordinance of labor. So that's two. We have two creation ordinances so far, procreation and labor. Uh, the third one, which is very closely related to labor, is the creation ordinance of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is mentioned, uh, first addressed there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. There the scriptures say that on the seventh day God finished creation. And the, the idea of finishing that appears there isn't just the cessation of work, but rather the perfect completion of the task that has been undertaken. Uh, it's the same uh, terminology of finished that's used to refer to the completion of the tabernacle in Exodus 40.23. It refers to Solomon's completion of the temple in Second Chronicles 7.11. Uh, the, the full meaning of the vocabulary is that the work is finished because it has been perfectly completed. It's not stopped midstream. It has reached its perfect completion. Uh, so God has brought his creation to its perfect completion and then he rests thereby both creating and blessing the sabbath day and now certainly the sabbath was a blessing it enabled man to rest from his labors if mankind labored six days he then had the seventh day in which he could be refreshed he could pause to enjoy uh, the fruits of what he had accomplished uh, he'd have time to spend with his children and his family he would have uh, the blessings of rest but at the same time the Sabbath obviously is an obligation. He had to rest. God didn't tell man he could rest if he wanted to. He told him to rest on the Sabbath day. Now, you get the sense there uh, that you know, throughout the creation account and throughout the scriptures, really, uh, you see these creation ordinances of Sabbath and labor working in tandem. Uh, the Sabbath is so wonderful because you've spent six days laboring and rest is sweet. And at the same time, the six days of laboring uh, have joy because you know that on the seventh day you're able to pause and look back and enjoy uh, what has been accomplished by your labor. Uh, the two creation ordinances, labor and Sabbath, go hand in hand. And if you take either one out, the other one uh, loses its power. Now, of course, the, the Sabbath creation ordinance, I guess it's always had hard times, but it continues to. That's uh, an often neglected uh, ordinance. And it, it seems to me that one of the reasons why that is, uh, one of the reasons why so many uh, churches and Christians today struggle with uh, notions of the Sabbath is because there we, our society has lost this necessary connection between labor and the Sabbath. A man is to work six days. And oftentimes you don't, you don't find that uh, in our society. And when mankind doesn't labor six days, the blessedness of the Sabbath uh, loses a little bit of its luster. Uh, the rest of the Sabbath isn't as potent. Uh, it struck me just two weeks ago after church, um, as a, uh, I was speaking with a, a member of the church, and he and his wife have two young children, and he is a school teacher, so he and his wife uh, stays at home with their children so he, he works incredibly hard to provide for his family uh, he feels called to teaching you know, he, he pours himself into it he feels that God has called him to do it and that he um, is being used in it for God's purposes and I asked this man how their you know, the week had gone and he said how it had been so busy all week they had to do a lot of stuff on Saturday uh, that just couldn't be done during the week and they're just exhausted and then he this look of visible relief came over his face and he said we're sure, sure looking forward to our Sabbath rest. You know, when you labor six days, when your six days are filled with seeking after what you feel God has called you to do, then the Sabbath rest is sweet. Uh, it's not an inconvenience. It's not a hindrance. It's a sweet and a blessed rest from your labor. Uh, when the seventh day uh, rolls around, uh, you're, you're grateful for it because you have uh, abided by the previous creation ordinance to labor six days. But uh, Robertson in his, in his book, if you all have not gotten to that section yet, has a pretty 
lengthy section on the Sabbath, which has some uh, interesting material in it. If you if you haven't read that yet, uh, pay attention to it. It's some thought provoking things. But anyway, not not to get hung up on that. The the fourth creation ordinance. Any any questions so far? By the way. Uh, the fourth creation ordinance, and this is the last one we'll look at this morning, and that is the ordinance of marriage. And you find that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Now, certainly you could, in one sense, you could argue against separating between the ordinance of procreation and the ordinance of marriage, because obviously procreation is to occur within marriage. But it, But it seems to me that the purposes of marriage are more extensive than simply procreation. And so therefore, uh, it's helpful, I think, to distinguish between the two of them. Uh, You know, as is clear from the text, uh, marriage is an obligation placed upon man. He's commanded to do it. But it's also a tremendous blessing. Uh, It brings companionship. It brings joy. It brings children. I think it's particularly interesting to note in Genesis chapter 2, Verse 23, you know, God has just formed Eve out of the side of Adam. And Adam, when he sees Eve, breaks out with this jubilant reaction. He's filled with joy because he sees Eve. And then, immediately thereafter, in verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Immediately after the joy that Adam has, we find the institution of marriage. You know, Adam would have had no doubt that in this obligation there was immense blessing. Uh, he was having uh, two-in-one union uh, with this uh, created woman who brought him such joy. So there's just a, a quick sketch of four of these creation ordinances. Uh, procreation, labor, Sabbath, and marriage. Uh, in each of them, an obligation is placed upon man. He's not given a choice as to whether to engage in these things or not. He's told he has to. Uh, there are these parameters around his relationship with God, around his life within the covenant of works. But in each of the obligations, God is laying out before man the path to happiness, the path to blessedness. Uh, rendering obedience isn't going to be a drag on man's joy but rather through rendering obedience, he finds joy. He finds blessedness in obedience. Now, uh, in all of that, it seems to me we get the sense of Robertson's point and his concern in distinguishing between the general aspects and the focal aspects of the covenant of works. Uh, The covenant of works is much larger than just this command not to eat of the tree. Uh, As you could say, hypothetically, if man had never eaten of the tree but he wouldn't marry, he wouldn't procreate, he wouldn't work, then he would have, been, he would have exhibited just as much disobedience. There, there's more to the covenant of works uh, than just the prohibition on eating of the tree. There are also those general aspects. But, of course, there is also the incredibly important focal aspect, the, the prohibition in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Uh, the prohibition on eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, in his placement in the garden, obviously man is given complete and abundant provision. He has everything he could ever conceivably need. But there's this stipulation that he may not eat of the fruit of this one tree that's nestled in the midst of the garden. As we said, you know, this... One command is no more binding than the creation ordinance. It's no more solemn than they are necessarily. Uh, Adam is no more obligated to refrain from eating of the tree than he is obligated to labor six days and rest the seventh. Uh, but it's at this one point, this one command of, or this one prohibition on eating, it's at this one point that man's obedience to the covenant of works would be directly tested. Uh, this is the, the focus of temptation. It's the, the focal aspect of the covenant, as Robertson calls it. And it, it seems to me that the reason why all of this focal weight is placed on this one prohibition is because this one prohibition really illustrates the essence or the heart of the covenant of works. 
Uh, the, the central fundamental issue in the covenant of works is whether or not man will live his life in conformity to the image of God, uh, whether he will reflect God's character and nature, uh, whether he'll uh, reflect it by obeying the command of the voice of God. Uh, you know, will, will man obey God's voice in order that he might reflect God's nature? And that's the, if you want to say there's a central point of the covenant of works, I think that might be it. And so in this one focal aspect, the point of the covenant of works is most clearly seen. You know, in all the creation ordinances, there's this clear promise of blessing that's annexed to obedience. Uh, if man worked the ground, he'd have food to eat. If he took a Sabbath rest, he would be refreshed. Uh, there were clear enticements to obedience. But in the focal aspect of the covenant of works, the only enticement to obedience is a belief in the absolute authority of the word of God uh, and a desire to obey that word. Now, certainly in Genesis 2.17, God does tell Adam that if he eats of the tree, he'll die. But even then, what does Adam know death to be other than separation from God, uh, the cessation of his current fellowship with his creator? Um, you know, as Robertson points out, and as we see very clearly when you get into chapter 3, verse 6, and you read of Eve's reaction to the tree, the tree looked good. I mean, there's no reason to suppose that eating of it would be bad and that refraining from it would be good. There was no reason to suspect it was bad other than the command of God, uh, other than the conviction uh, that for whatever reason, eating of it would rupture man's relationship with God. Uh, the, entire, the entirety of Adam's enticement to obedience is his obedience to God, or his, his desire to be obedient, and his desire to have fellowship. Now, it seems to me for that reason that this one prohibition brings out the core of the covenant of works. Uh, will man seek after conformity to and fellowship with his Creator by rendering submissive obedience to the Word of his Creator. That seems to me to be the heart of the covenant of works. Uh, will, will man seek after conformity to and fellowship with his Creator by rendering submissive obedience to the word of his Creator? Now, on the, the first day of class, if you recall, we had said that God's uh, eternal, unchangeable purpose, this purpose that he's pursuing through covenant, is the purpose to bring a people to himself, uh, to make his people like him with him. And the test, if you want to put it that way, of the covenant of works is, will man render obedience in order for that to occur? Will he be obedient in order that he might be like God with God. Now, at this point, it seems to me, the, the question of this particular test of that underlying heart of the covenant, uh, a question arises that's really a, a perennial question whenever the covenant of works is discussed. Essentially, was Adam's testing in the covenant of works a time of probation? Or was it uh, an indefinite period of duration? Uh, in other words, if Adam, had, if Adam had been obedient, if he had refrained from eating of the tree for a set amount of time, would he then have satisfied the covenant and moved on to a state of blessing? Or was this command not to eat, was this an ongoing command that he would have had to obey ad infinitum if he had remained obedient? Y'all see the... Distinction I'm getting at. Um, typically, a, a distinction is made, and I think, Michael, maybe, I think maybe you were asking about this the first week, perhaps. Uh, a, a distinction is made between what Thomas Boston and others have called the fourfold state of human nature. And in this fourfold state of human nature, it's, human nature is seen as passing through these four phases. And the first phase, you have 
passe peccare, passe non peccare, is put in the, the Latin. Basically what that means is able to sin, able not to sin. And that's what man was in the garden. That was Adam. He was able to sin. He bore testimony to that. But he was also able not to sin. After the fall, mankind became, in the Latin, as you sometimes see it written, non passe, non peccare, not able not to sin. Man in his fallen condition cannot not sin. Everything he does, the thoughts of his heart, the movements of his hands, uh, everything is sin. Now, once man has been redeemed, he moves to the third state of human nature, and that is passe peccare, passe non peccare. Again, able to sin, able not to sin. That's man in his regenerate state. That's Christians. You're able, certainly able to sin. You don't need much to prove that. But you're also able not to sin by the grace of the Spirit. And then, when man is in glory, he then finally becomes non passe peccare. He's not able to sin. Uh, in glory, there is no sin. Finite man in his glorified state is unable to sin. So you have these, generally speaking, these four phases of human nature. And speaking in terms of those, the question is this. If Adam had persisted in his obedience for a set period of time, if he'd gone a certain length of time without eating of the fruit of the tree, would he have moved from able to sin, able not to sin, all the way to the end, not able to sin? Uh, would there have come an end to the covenant of works? Was this covenant a, a period of probation, a period in which it was being tested, that would come to an end at some point, or was it an indefinite state of existence? That's a, a question that often comes up with regard to the covenant of works. And it seems to me that on that question, the scriptures really don't give a clear-cut answer. Uh, what they do give is mostly implication. But, you know, I want to put that caveat on it. I don't think you can take a stridently dogmatic position. But the implication, the strong implication, I think, is that the covenant of works was a period of probation. Uh, there would have come a point at some time at which Adam had fulfilled the covenant and he became not able to sin. And largely, I think that can be based off of Paul's argument in the fifth chapter of Romans, uh, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. In, those, in that passage, uh, we'll look at it in more detail later on in the semester. But in that passage, Paul compares the federal headship of Adam and the federal headship of Christ. And he says, as Adam's disobedience brought sin and death upon his posterity, so Christ's obedience brought righteousness and life upon his people. So Paul gives us reason to believe that there is a congruity uh, between the sort of obedience that was required of Adam and the, you know, the sort of disobedience that he showed and the sort of obedience that was required of Christ. And obviously with Christ, his period of obedience had an end point. Uh, he... Uh, lived lived a particular lifespan, and then from the cross he was able to cry out, it is finished. Uh, his work of redemption was finished. Uh, his obligations had been fully and perfectly met. His probation in that sense was over. And given the parallelism, it seems to me uh, reasonable to assume that the same would have been true for Adam. Now, who, there's no way to know how long that would have been, Certainly there's a, a qualitative difference between the obedience of man, the creature, and the obedience of the eternal, impeccable Son of God. Uh, so it's conceivable Adam's probation would have been rather lengthy. But I think there would have been an end point, it seems. And that, uh, that matter of a probationary period within the covenant of works also brings up another recurring question within the covenant of works. Another thing that always crops up when people talk about or write about the covenant of works. And that is, what do you make of the tree of life? Now, what was the tree of life? You know, we read that the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Evidently, Adam was allowed to eat of it. He was allowed to eat of every tree but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, what was this tree of life? 
Now, generally, there are two lines of interpretation that you most often find. On the one hand, some people say that the tree of life actually had the power to instill and to preserve life. Eating of the tree of life brought life. Now, not in the sense that if you ate one bite of the fruit, you live forever, but rather in the sense that eating of this tree sustained life. It was a life-giving tree. Uh, In that regard, it was different from the other trees in the garden. That's one interpretation. Uh, The other primary interpretation you meet is that this tree of life was sacramental, uh, that it was a sacrament. It, It held forth in visible form an invisible reality. Uh, If Adam rendered obedience in the covenant of works, he would have eternal life. And the tree of life represented that uh, in a a sacramental sense, even though it in no sense conveyed eternal life. Now, again, in my opinion, my humble opinion, it's impossible and I would say even unnecessary to come down too heavy on that question. It's one that continues to crop up, so you almost have to have thought about it a little bit. Um, But it's one that I don't think is particularly uh, a necessary question. Now, the the scriptures aren't too terribly clear. I don't think you can be overly dogmatic about it. But if 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 you have to take a position, if somebody asks you, their curiosity won't be set aside. It seems to me that the first option is the better option. Uh, that the tree of life did have some power to impart and sustain life. And the the lines of argument that support that, in my opinion, are twofold. Uh, First of all, I think you have to take into account man's expulsion from the garden in chapter 3, verses 22 22 through 24. Uh, In verse 22 of Genesis 3, what God says in verse 22 seems to pretty clearly imply that if Adam in his fallen state eats of the tree of life, he'll live forever. Uh, There seems to have been some definitive life-sustaining, life-imparting power uh, to this tree. And then in verse 24 of Genesis 3, the scriptures tell us that the cherubim are placed at the entrance to the garden with their flaming swords specifically to keep sinful man from the tree of life. It doesn't say from the garden as a whole, obviously that's implied, but it says specifically from the tree of life. Now, I, I don't at all presume to understand what all that means in its entirety, but it does seem to at least mean that there was some life-giving quality to the fruit of the tree. Uh, also, anybody familiar with where, where else you meet the tree of life in the Scriptures? Very good. Revelation 22, verse 2, uh, the tree of life is in the midst of the new heavens and the new earth. And there seems to me to be no, really no need for a sacramental component after the consummation. At that point, the new heavens and the new earth, in the fullest sense, all of the shadows have fled away. The reality has come. Uh, There's Uh, The saints will know the full reality of God's redemption, the full reality of eternal life. Uh, There seems to me to be no real place for a sacramental element uh, at that point. So, like I say, it's it's something that um, I think oftentimes people spend unnecessary amount of time on. uh, But it it does seem that if you you have to take a position on it, that the tree did have some sort of life-giving, life-sustaining quality. Uh, So presumably, if Adam had continued in his obedience, uh, he was free to be constantly eating of this tree of life, uh, being sustained uh, in his life uh, until his period of probation was over, and he entered a state of secured blessedness. But of course, all that's necessarily conjecture, because Adam didn't render obedience, as we know full well. Uh, He disobeyed God's command, he sinned. And in him, all of humanity sinned as well. Uh, It's very clear, not only in Genesis, but also in the passage out of Romans 5 that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, that Adam was a representative for all of humanity. He was the federal head or the covenantal head. Uh, He represented all of his posterity. And so when he sinned, he not only violated the covenant of works for himself, but he did it for all of us as well. 
And we have... Um, but we'll just do a quick little wrap-up of some things, then we'll dismiss. Yeah. The... Yeah, well, uh, that's one of the things I was looking at the time. I don't really had enough time to get into it, so I didn't want to... That's one of the things that's coming up as far as the um, the current standing of the covenant of works. Uh, so we'll we'll get into that after chapel, if that if you don't mind waiting till then, because um, the, the, there there are some men have been led into pretty serious error by thinking that the covenant of works is no more. <laughs> um, but um, we'll just quickly sum up everything, and then we'll go to chapel and then come back and take up the last couple of issues including that one with the covenant of works before we move on uh i think you know so far hopefully we've pretty clearly established that although genesis chapters one and two don't contain the word berit they very clearly are describing a covenant Uh, they're describing a covenantal relationship between god and adam Uh, on the one hand there is an unspeakably close relationship Uh, adam bears god's image Uh, He bears it both in distinction from the rest of the created order and also in the plurality of male and female. There's the closest of relationships between God and man. And within that relationship, there are clear obligations. There's the creation ordinances. uh, There's the prohibition on eating the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, There are clear uh, obligations along with this relationship. If those obligations are violated, there's punishment. Well, you see that very clearly in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Uh, if man violates his obligations, he surely dies. And yet that undoubtedly heightens the binding aspect of the relationship. Uh, this relationship between God and man is one from which man cannot extricate himself except on pain of death. This is a binding relationship. Uh, but along with these, uh, the punishment for violation, uh, there also is blessing that comes with obedience. Uh, you see the uh, the blessings that are entwined with the creation ordinances. Uh, there's also the clear implication that if Adam does refrain from the eating of the tree, he'll live forever. Uh, there are blessings that are attendant upon his obedience. So while Genesis 1 and 2 are devoid of the explicit vocabulary of Berit, all of the words that do occur in Genesis 1 and 2 seem to me to be describing a binding relationship between God and Adam that involve both blessings and obligations uh, with punishment for violation and reward upon obedience. It's uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are describing a covenant. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.